Hello there, friends. This is Spencer Michaud, and today we're going to be talking about Venus's movement through the third decan of Aries. So this is between 20 degrees of Aries and then the beginning of Taurus. So this is a period of time between April the 6th and April the 14th. Today we're going to talk a little bit about the daimon of this decan, Eros, and the story of Eros and Psyche. We're going to look at some of the transits that Venus is making over this time period, including a sextile to Jupiter and a square with Pluto. All right. And of course, we will do an I Ching at the end of the video to tie a bow on it and give us a sense of purpose and meaning and potentially some way to weather either the storm or to cultivate the best use of this time. All right, so what we are looking at here again is April 6th, 2021, Tuesday, uh, 12.39 p.m. Eastern Daylight Time. We're going to see Venus moving into the third decan of Aries. And over this time frame, um, it's going to be traveling with the sun and Mercury. So it's co-present with both the sun and Mercury. It will be making a whole sign sextile to Jupiter, Saturn, and um, Mars. So we've got Jupiter and Saturn sextiling from Aquarius and uh, Mars sextiling from Gemini. Now, Jupiter and Saturn are in the overcoming position to Venus, but Venus does have kind of overcoming power of Mars right now. And Mars is the host. So Venus is in Mars's diurnal temple right now in her exile. So that is an interesting thing. Now, Venus does have some dignity in this decan because she is her own decanic ruler by the dis descending Chaldean order system. So she has uh, some power here. Now, before we get into kind of her power and what she wants to do, um, I did want to show you some of the phase relationships that Venus is going to be have during this period of time. It is important uh, looking at what what point in the synodic cycle uh, the planet is going to be in is going to tell us a lot about its ability to bring things into being. Uh, whether it's visible or not is going to show us whether the issues that we're dealing with are going to be more center stage or behind the scenes. In this case, Venus is under the sun's beams in the lying hidden phase. We just had the Kazemi uh, a number of days ago, and now Venus is separating from the sun and eventually will make her evening rise on the 22nd of May. So throughout this last period of Venus in Aries, she'll be under the sun's beams. She will be moving fast and in direct motion, though, so there may be a number of things happening. It just may not be visible right now. So again, we're, we're going to, we're going to, each thing is asking us to have patience. It seems to be every single uh, reading that I do lately. Um, but I think it does make sense, especially when both Mercury and Venus are under the sun's beams and making their Kazemi moments, and then we'll be making their evening rises eventually. So that period of time is one where these planets are sort of being reborn in the furnace of the sun or getting infused with some sort of vital purpose. 
and that does take patience. We can't, we can't cook the food uh, too quickly. You can't rush a good meal. Um, sometimes you have to let the soup simmer a little bit. So I think that's what we are dealing with, with these two inferior planets. Okay. Uh, so mark your calendars, May 22nd, 17 degrees of Gemini, Venus is going to reappear from out from under the sun's beams. So that'll be a moment we can kind of see, you know, potentially things manifesting in the, not only the Gemini area of your life, but in the Taurus and Libra area of your chart as well, because uh, Venus is ruling those areas, probably be, uh, you know, a little bit easier for the Libra area, I will say, because Venus will be witnessing that house by whole sign aspect from Gemini, and it will be an aversion to its Taurus home. So that is another thing. So I'll just write it on the screen here for those of you watching the video. So when Venus gets to Gemini and makes her evening rise, she will be able to see your Libra house by trine, but will not be, will have a blind spot to the Taurus area. So that is, you know, that's something to consider. Uh, if you're thinking about making moves in the Gemini and Libra area of your life, that's probably going to be better supported by this evening rise that's going to happen in late May. Uh, if you're thinking about making moves with your Taurus, <laughs> Taurus stuff, it may be a little bit more challenging. There may be some more compromises that have to be made. Okay, so that's, that's the synodic cycle. I won't spend too much time on that today. I want to talk a little bit more about myth today. So again, Venus is in her own face in Deccan, but still in exile in Mars's house. Uh, she will be moving through the terms of Mars from 20 to 25 degrees of Aries, and then the terms of Saturn from 25 to 30 degrees of Aries. So these are malefic bound lords. A little bit of a rougher go for Venus because she has some curriculum setters that are a little bit tougher teachers so that the expectations are a little bit more severe for Venus and potentially the punishments could be a little bit more severe. And we'll get to that when we talk about Eros and Psyche and Aphrodite's wrath. <laughs> like, oh man, that's a story. Um, the face rulers of this Deccan are, are Venus and Jupiter. Um, in the tarot, we see the four of wands. And this card is called completion. And I'll stop my share for just a second so you can see it. Completion in uh, the Book of Toth and Perfected Work in Book T. Austin Coppett calls it the burning rose. Now, if we were to look at kind of the journey we've been taking through Aries to, uh, through Aries 1, 2, and 3, the three decans, we start off with the Dominion card, trying to figure out what new territory we want to conquer, <laughs> how we want to separate from the parent plant or the uh, oppressive terrible father or mother or whatever authority figure that we want to separate from in martial style. And, um, you know, this is Alexander the Great here that we can see kind of looking out and seeing what new, what new country am I going to, uh, you know, conquer next. Then we were sending out our ships in the card called Virtue and the Three of Wands. And uh, here we were learning about governing that new territory that we may have uh, annexed. Um, and, you know, being a good king, this was the Deccan that had the sun's degree of exaltation. And now we're moving towards the four of wands. In it, we see two figures kind of raising uh, 
I don't know, like bouquets. And they are underneath what is called a, a hoopa. I think I'm saying that correctly, hoopa. It's C-H-U-P-P-A-H, which was a, a bridal structure for a wedding ceremony. So there is some ceremonial connotations with this card and with this decan. Um, T. Susan Chang talks about after we have conquered the territory and you know crowned a new king, then we have a celebration to, to consecrate his authority or his new reign. Consecration is an interesting word too, because when you consecrate a marriage, it speaks to maybe making love or something of that nature and making it official. And there is definitely some sexiness associated with this Deccan. Uh, it is, especially with, with Eros, right? So a ritual celebration uh, that is helping to consecrate the new king. T. Susan Chang also says that Venus, uh, to deal with her exile in this Deccan, quote unquote, spends like a drunken sailor. So I, I will caution you, um, be careful about buying things under this period of time. Uh, everybody maybe needs a little retail therapy every once in a while, especially in pandemic land. I know I, I fell prey to this, this, uh, this Aphrodite energy and did a, a little bit of a, a book binge lately. Again, I've got some more mythology books coming. I love these little Loeb classic series. They're really these tiny little books that are very difficult to read because the text is so small. But what I love about them is that you have the ancient Greek on one side and the English translation on the other. So I'm considering these an investment in the future where I have learned how to read Greek and can translate it myself. So that is the reason I've been getting these translations. And I have Ovid's Metamorphosis coming in the mail. Um, Apollodorus, which is another Greek myth source text. Um, just really trying to learn my myth well. And on that note, I wanted to guide all of you to a really interesting resource that I've been leaning on lately. Uh, it's called The Great Greek Myths, which is a, a series on Amazon Prime. Uh, it's a little bit of a hidden gem. There was three, three seasons of this show where they're talking about these Greek myths and there is this cool animation combined with like um, classical art from different time periods in history. And it's really well narrated and, and the I found the stories to be very accurate. And it's a nice little visual when you are cross-referencing some of these these stories with what you're reading in the source text. I don't know about you, but I, I am a I tend to be a little bit of a visual learner and it helps me to to remember the stories better if I'm seeing it in sort of a I don't know in real life, you know? And the the, the animation is really interesting. It's a it's kind of this, it's very colorful, but but also with with the figures are are kind of silhouetted. So it allows you to use your imagination, which I think is really neat. So it's like seeing this little silhouette uh, play, you know, those little like stick figures with silhouettes. So kind of neat. Check it out. Amazon Prime, Great Greek Myths. There are three seasons. Okay. So let's talk a little bit. Let's talk some mythology here. So the daimon that is associated with this Deccan in the, um, in the fragmentary text called 36 Heirs of the Zodiac uh, is called Eros. 
Now, Eros has an interesting history, right? Eros is both a primordial god of creation, but we see, we see this in Hesiod, and I'll read you a little excerpt from my Loeb classic series here, but also in, in different myths and different poetic treatments is a son of Aphrodite. Um, and there's another parentage that is interesting too, and I'll break that down, but let's start with Eros, the creator. So this is uh, Hesiod, Theogony, okay, Loeb classical series. And this is on page 13, line 116. Excuse me, it says, In truth, first of all, chasm came to be, and then broad-breasted earth, the ever-immovable seat of all the immortals who possess snowy Olympus's peak and murky Tartarus in the depths of the broad-pathed earth, and Eros, who was the most beautiful among the immortal gods, the limb-melter, he overpowers the mind and the thoughtful counsel of all the gods and all the human beings in their breasts. Okay, so a short passage that basically is like, this is the, the primordial urge for things to, to mate, to create uh, new things, to, to procreate. And chasm is an interesting word. I've seen different translations of this word. One translation is chaos, but they make a, a, a specific note that... Um, this uh, in Hesiod, it, it, it is the words that he use indicate an opening where something is arising out of this gaping hole, basically. Okay, so that I thought was pretty cool. One other thing I wanted to read to you is from this book, which is called The Orphic Hymns by Apostolos uh, Athanasakis. <laughs> Apost I can never say this guy's word. I apologize to any of my Greek friends out there. Apostolos Athanasakis. Okay. This is a really great uh, translation of the Orphic Hymns. I have two books that I like with the Orphic Hymns. One is by Patrick Dunn that has the original, um, who has the original Thomas Taylor, 18th century translations in the appendix, as well as his own translation. And then this one is more, has some really good footnotes about what all the stuff means in, in Greek and whatnot. But I want to read this one to you. This is number 56, to Eros. It says, I call upon you, great, pure, lovely, and sweet Eros, winged archer who runs swiftly on a path of fire, who plays together with gods and mortal men. Inventive, two-natured, you are master of all, of the sky's ether, and of the sea and the land, and of the all-begetting winds, which for mortals the goddess of grass and grain nurtures, of all that lies in Tartarus, of all that lies in the roaring sea, you alone govern the course of all these. O blessed one, come to the initiates with pure thought, banish from them vile impulses. Okay. One little footnote that uh, the author of this book points out is that in the Orphic religion, which these were sacred texts for, desire was something that they were trying to purify. And this concept of eros, of desire, was, was not necessarily something that was a good thing. This could lead, lead people to doom as well as to, to bliss. So there is this dual nature with eros. Now, for those of you who uh, 
are familiar with the eros in, in pop culture, another word for eros is, is cupid. Uh, we can also think of it as amor, okay? And when I picture this, I picture both the, you know, the little chubby baby with the, with the arrows, the flaming arrows to set people's hearts on fire. Uh, I remember there was a, a Looney Tunes cartoon with Elmer Fudd, like shooting his arrows. It's from like the forties or something. Uh, and I can always hear his little, his, his Elmer Fudd voice. I'm not going to try to, you know, recreate it here, but, um, and I'm also thinking of like Pepe Le Pew, right? Where he's, he's fall, falling madly in love with this cat and it's it, all of his escapades to, to be united with this cat. It's that impulse that drives us, that desire, that, that feeling of longing, of lack, that, um, and of, you know, like we'll do anything to pursue this. Now it was said that Eros and two types of, of Eros, one was gold and the other was made of lead. And the gold one would inflame your heart to desire, and the lead one would make it so that you could never really uh, feel love again. So I thought that was very curious and interesting as well. Um, we can also see that Eros had a really interesting story uh, with Psyche. Now, before we get to that, one other parentage of Eros, beyond being a, a, a son of Aphrodite, was uh, in some stories, they say that Eros was the son of uh, these two, I don't know if it was they were mortals or they were like personifications, um, Paras and Penea, which roughly translates to wealth or resourcefulness and poverty. So, I, you know, there was this, this uh, wealthy daimon, I guess, or spirit that uh, filled himself up with food and drink and then fell asleep under a tree and poverty came along uh, and, you know, saw him sleeping and was like, you know, they laid together. And then from this union came Eros. So it, it's interesting to see that there's like, you, you are both filled with something, but you, you also lack something. And I think that is an interesting way of thinking about Venus in this second too, is we desire something very, very much, but we may find ourselves in a position of, uh, of contest, of a position of being separated from that which we desire, since it is still the house of Mars. And this is kind of one of those things where absence makes the heart grow fonder type of thing. So you, you may find that you are separated from the thing that you desire, but that may inflame your, the intensity of your love even more or of your lust or of your desire of whatever, whatever it may be. Um, but I did want to, to talk a little bit about this story of Eros and Psyche because I think that it really does make some sense, especially when we are getting to Venus and Jupiter and Venus and Pluto. Now, in, in, I guess another pop culture reference I wanted to make with this is that one of the more famous uh, Venus in Aries three natives that I think really embodies this energy quite well was Marilyn Monroe. So she had Venus in the third decan of Aries, and she both felt the longing for having a love or a partner, but she also inflamed desire in people. She was almost, her, her um, beauty was almost mythologized like Psyche. She played out the, both the Eros and the Psyche role here. 
So let me see if I can recount this story to all of you. I brushed up on it today. I would read it to you, but it's really, really long and I don't want to bore you doing it um, note for note. Okay. So I, I, this is this is my understanding at this point. And forgive me if I fudge any of the details. Okay, so basically Eros was this beautiful youth. All right, that he's been portrayed both as like this chubby little baby, like Cupid, and this beautiful youth. And there was this beautiful maiden that was born. Uh, her name was Psyche, and she was very very attractive. Think like Marilyn Monroe of her time, right? And everybody was very enamored with her to the point where Aphrodite, Venus, got caught wind of this and became very jealous. And uh, I believe that there was some hubris that was crafted about somebody comparing her beauty to Aphrodite. And this was a big no-no for the Greek goddess, gods and goddesses. You don't, you know, compare your beauty to a goddess you don't compare your power to a god. That was the ultimate hubris that would not go unpunished. So, you know, Aphrodite was, you know, called her son Eros and said, I want you to take one of your arrows and I want you to shoot this golden arrow to, you know, and hit this maiden. You know, she's been saying that she's, people are saying she's more beautiful than me. And I want you to make her fall in love with the most hideous beast you can possibly find. Like the most, the ugliest mortal, the big, the, the, the most disgusting monster. And Eros was like, all right, all right, mom, I guess I'm going to do what you want me to do. And so he went to do this and he, he was approaching a sleeping psyche and uh, he caught a little glimpse of her in the candlelight. And he was really taken aback. Like his, his, he, you know, the breath went out of him and he was in shock with her. He had never seen someone so beautiful. And he uh, tripped and he accidentally injured himself with his own arrow. So he became uh, passionately enamored with Psyche uh, to the point where he couldn't think about anything else, right? He couldn't think about anything else but Psyche. And eventually, uh, you know, I guess there are different versions of the myth, but somehow she was lured to a um, uh, a castle of some sort, and Eros was in a dark chamber of this castle, and kind of, uh, you know, made this kind of deal with Psyche. Like there was this prophecy. First of all, like Eros. Er, er, oh, I'm sorry. Let me let me think about it for a minute. Psyche's dad went to the the Delphic Oracle, and the Oracle told her father that that she was going to have to marry this hideous beast, and that he should leave her on a mountainside to to die, basically. Uh, and uh, it, there is some thought that maybe Aphrodite was the one giving the Oracle the message, some trickery, because Aphrodite was was very, you know, jealous and deceitful. So maybe she went off to this castle, maybe the father sent her away, but neither here nor there. Uh, she was afraid because she thought she was going to have to to marry this monster. There is a lot of similarities also with this story to the story of Beauty and the Beast. So they're not exactly the same, but there are this, I would say this is probably a, a seminal story for Beauty and the Beast, All right? Because we, we do see myth repeat throughout different cultures. Um, so she was comforted by Eros's voice 
she told he told her that like okay everything's going to be okay um you just come here and you can stay here in this castle i will be your husband and but i there is one condition you know you may never look at my face like you you can only see me in the darkness you can't look at my face and since she was comforted by uh eros she agreed to this this condition um and things were going well for a while right and eventually she was getting lonely because Eros was out doing his thing, inflaming the hearts of both gods and mortals. And, um, you know, Psyche got a little lonely. And I think she asked to go back and visit her family, which she did. And they were relieved to see her, but her stepsisters or her sisters, I believe it was stepsisters, where there's always some stepsister action, right? Sort of a maybe almost like a Cinderella primordial thing, were, were jealous. Um, and, uh, you know, told her all these stories of, you know, trying to cast doubt on whether she was laying with some kind of monster because she was saying how nice this person was and, you know, and they were like, well, that sounds nice, but maybe they were trying to get her to think that this was a great monster that was her husband. And it really cast the seed of doubt within Psyche. And she uh, went back to Eros's castle and just couldn't help herself. Like she, you know, came back and one day he was sleeping in the bed and she like, you know, took the candle and under the candlelight saw that he was not in fact a hideous monster, but probably one of the more, the most attractive young gentlemen that she had ever seen. And, uh, you know, she fell madly deeply in love with him if she wasn't already. Um, but she had broken her trust. So this is a story of broken trust, a broken oath, a broken vow. And, you know, Eros was like, you broke the trust. I'm out. You know, he basically left her and abandoned her. And um, eventually, uh, Psyche had like gone all across the countryside searching for her love, praying at these altars to, to allow her to be with Psyche again. And this caught the attention of Aphrodite and Aphrodite um, saw an opportunity to punish poor Psyche. And she set her a number of tasks, impossible tasks. Like one was like to sort out all these grains into these huge piles. Another was to get this brackish water from on top of a mountain uh, or from the river of sticks or something of that nature. And Zeus helped her with that in the form of an eagle. At various points in these tasks, Various gods and goddesses took pity on Psyche and um, helped her. And one task that she was given by Aphrodite was to enter the underworld and capture in a small box some of Persephone's beauty. Now, isn't this interesting? Because we've seen Persephone as the second the decanic ruler or the second decanic spirit of Ares. We had Hades in, in Ares one or Adonis. Persephone in the second decan, and now we have Eros. So we have to revisit Persephone in the underworld. And there were various secrets that she had to learn to be able to put the, the three-headed dog Cerberus to sleep. I believe it was like a wine-soaked cake or something of that nature. She had to give two coins to Chiron, or Charon, sorry, the, the ferryman, one for the journey there and one for the journey back. So she did all of these things, and eventually she she got to Persephone and Hades, and they took pity on her, and they you know Persephone gave her some of her beauty, 
in this box, gave her the box, but told her not to open it. You can't open this box. This is the second box that we've seen where when a God tells you not to open the box, don't open the box. <laughs> like this is the thing. It was reminding me of like the that movie seven. What's in the box? What's in the box? Just don't open it. <laughs> you know, like so she leaves the underworld and and eventually she gets to the surface and her curiosity overcomes her. She she's like, if this is Persephone's beauty, what could I do with this beauty? If this this maybe this could make me so desirable that that I could win psyche back or something of that nature. She opens the box. And of course, in this box was this this you know, mist came out and put her to sleep and she died. This was like the, the sleep of death, right? This is from Persephone, the queen of the underworld. And, uh, you know, Psyche was pretty upset about this. And I believe he implored his fellow gods on, on Olympus to, to help out. And um, eventually they were reunited. Like eventually uh, th there was a kiss. This is another trope that we see in like, Disney movies and stuff is the the prince's kiss awakens the beloved from uh, a deep sleep. So Psyche had this this magical kiss that, or I'm sorry, Eros had this magical kiss that awakened his love Psyche, and they I guess they lived happily ever after in in the 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 realm of the gods, but not without conflict. Okay, so this is the thing: we have this great love, we have this great desire, this great lust, we have you know this this entity that was born out of both great wealth, we, we were filled up with this love, and we, yet we feel empty. We desire it because we are not completely filled. We still feel like there's both a hole and something that we want to fill it with, okay? So uh, pretty interesting stuff. And I think that we can see this with these aspects here because on the 10th, and let's go back to our chart here, in our chart, we're going to move through a few different things. On the 10th, we will see uh, Aphrodite, or Venus, making a sextile to Jupiter. Okay, so here's our sextile. This is an, a harmonious aspect between Aphrodite and Zeus. Okay. And now we can think about this as potentially an aspect of extravagance, luxury, adornments, grand celebrations was something that came up in Ren Butler's very good book, The Archetypal Universe. Isn't that interesting? Because we are in a decan that is associated with some kind of wedding ceremony or feast or celebration. Uh, so we have this dual kind of energy here. Now, Jupiter is hanging out in the third decan of Aquarius, which is associated with the Seven of Swords. And that card and that decan is about leaving the past behind and entering the unknown. So potentially on the 10th, we may see some kind of celebration, some kind of celebration of a completion, like a graduation party. Uh, like we've, we've finished something where we are now moving into some kind of new unknown experience. So I think that instead of this celebrating a beginning, I guess every ending is also a beginning, but it could be we are, we are really saying, okay, we finally left this other thing behind. It's time to celebrate where we've been so that we can make a new start with where we are going. Okay. Um, just be careful that you don't overdo it. 
Uh, I think that that's the the danger. This is a, a fairly harmonious aspect or something that could be very, very nice. But again, when we have the, the, the God of abundance uh, meeting up with the goddess of adornment, luxury, you know, we can get extravagance, we can get excess and things like that. So again, temperance and, and balance is the key. Even, even if we can, have, we can even have too much of a good thing. Remember we said that Venus can spend like a drunken sailor. This might be the moment that you're tempted to like buy three, 300 more dollars worth of books. I always am like talking to myself in some of these. Uh, so read the books you have before you buy new ones, Spencer. <laughs> Sorry. I'm just scolding myself. So if I listen to these uh, later. Now, I just love books, though, and and with every new book that I start reading and start engaging with, there's always a bibliography. There's always something that they are referencing and that the next author is referencing, and it's always you're going back to these sources, and, you know, learning one thing creates some sort of new excitement about learning and something else. I mean, this is, it can be endless like that. So follow your passion but try to finish the thing that you are working on before you start something else. Now, if we move forward one more day, we can see that we have an exact square between Pluto, AKA Hades, the Lord of the underworld and Aphrodite, Venus. So this, this is happening close enough to that Jupiter sextile that, you know, this is part of the same story. So try not to, to um, when you are, I guess, when you are having your grand celebrations, don't, 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 uh, <laughs> don't choose nefarious means to, to get it, to get the job done or something of that nature. I will say this, this is also the day of our new moon. So this is the new moon at 22 degrees of Aries on Sunday, April 11th. So this is a whole new start where we may be trying to seduce an audience to, to join us in this new country that we're trying to establish, this new sovereign state, this new individual freedom-loving place that we've worked so hard to separate from the mother country to establish ourselves. We may be trying to gain a following. Uh, Austin Kopik in his book, 36 Faces, talks about um, trying to win over a hostile crowd, right? We can also see with this uh, Deccan, that Aries, or the, that Eros psyche dichotomy, where there is this great love that is trying to take place, but we've got this jealous goddess trying to trip us up at every turn. So you, I think you can see that as being part of the hostile circumstances that you may have to be working through in this decade. So what is going on with Venus squaring Pluto? Well, I would think that this would be akin to Aphrodite's wrath, uh, her jealousy in this story, that the punishment that Aphrodite is trying to enact upon poor Psyche for just for being herself and being beautiful. So the, this could be also the dark side of our desire, of our longing. This could, where, this could be where desire turns into obsession, right? Where we have this kind of mission that we're trying to carry out as well. Maybe we could consider this period of time Psyche's journey into the underworld to speak with Persephone. That could be part of the story that we have here. So be careful of any boxes that you're handed 
don't open them. <laughs> like, don't open the boxes. You know, like if you're given uh, a gift, you know, try to follow whatever the terms are. Okay. Like this, one of the things that I think about with Venus in this decan is we may receive something very good, but that might not be enough. All right. You know, that we may desire more because Mars is driving the ship and says, no, that's not enough. I want more. I want it all. And that's when we can really get into trouble. That's when we reach the point of hubris where we will be punished by the gods uh, unless they choose to take mercy on us. Now, there's another story that comes up with uh, Venus and Pluto, and that is the story of Inanna and Ereshkigal. And again, this is a, a story that, that talks about a, a stand-in for Aphrodite, maybe one that is even more ancient in a Sumerian or Babylonian myth, where Inanna was kind of the, the um, oh, I don't know, the correlation to uh, Aphrodite. And Ereshkigal potentially is our, our Hades or Pluto stand-in. And Inanna had to go into the underworld and speak to her sister Ereshkigal and was stripped of all her adornments uh, in the seven gates of hell and eventually was killed by her sister once they met face to face when she, after she had been stripped of everything and hung on a meat hook. And eventually her attendants had to come and, and get her, the mourners, and go through those same seven gates. And um, when they found Ereshkigal, she was in, in labor. She was in pain, in great pain. She was giving birth to something. And instead of trying to, to heal her or do anything for her, they just listened to her pain and they mourned with her. They had empathy for her. So this was something that was a great gift to Ereshkigal. And she granted them any wish. And the wish that they had was to retrieve Inanna's body and, and bring her back to the, the land of the light and the land of the living. And they had to trade something, though, because Inanna's husband had not mourned her properly when she had left. Uh, she traded him. <laughs> you know, she was like, all right, you can go to the underworld now. See you later. Um, and eventually, I believe he became uh, Ereshkigal's consort, Nergal. All right. So again, if you come across something painful, empathy is a great, a great way to deal with it. There may be some fate that we encounter where it, it brings up all of our uh, wrathfulness of Aphrodite. Uh, we may have to really work through some of those feelings of jealousy or envy or not feeling that we are enough or good enough. Again, this is a thing where when we are constantly looking over our shoulder towards what others are doing, that can bring out this side of Aphrodite. And really the key is lean back on the, you know, the Aries solar archetype where you just are, you know, happy to be you and you don't have to necessarily be anything more than you and your path is different than other people's. And um, you're going to save yourself a lot of heartache, a lot of heartbreak, a lot of corruption uh, if you follow your path rather than try to emulate somebody else's. It's okay to be inspired by others. Um, but if you're getting angry, upset that, that people have what you do not, that can lead to some, some challenges. Okay. So that is what's going on on the 11th. 
there's just one other thing that is kind of happening from my perspective. Um, we are seeing on the 13th, the very end of this cycle here, we're going to see in the 13th and the 14th, Venus is going to uh, match up with a um, fixed star called Alresha. And Alresha is a, in the constellation of Pisces, and it is the sacred knot that ties the two fish together. It is the point of union between the fish that is swimming towards the eternal, towards the heavenly realms, and the one that is swimming along the ecliptic, the mortal realm, right? Like the heaven and earth. So this may be a point where after we've gone into the underworld and we maybe have emerged with some kind of realization, with some kind of empathy, some kind of self-love where we're rooting out all these maybe corrupt thoughts that may be telling us that we're not enough, that'll lead to a healing. And maybe we can, all, we can tie it all together again before Venus moves into Taurus, her own temple, okay? Before she infuses into a, an earthly uh, body that is very abundant and sumptuous and things of that nature. Okay, so this is where we could have some supportive relationship ties, um, where we are kind of seeing how everything fits together in our life. You know, maybe this is the marriage tie, of this four of wands. This card was associated with weddings and things like that. So maybe there is some kind of sacred wedding that takes place maybe with someone in your life, maybe with your own, um, I don't know, your own self-esteem, your own uh, higher self, where you are wedding your physical body, your ego with your higher self and realizing that, you know, life's going to work a lot better if you just love yourself. I think that may be what we're seeing with Venus on Eurasia. All right. So the last thing that we're going to do today is we are going to do an I Ching reading. And I will draw this on the screen for you and narrate for those of you who are listening to the audio. Today, I got the hexagram number 26. And it is changing to the hexagram number five, our favorite number five. I've, like I said, I've gotten five and nine a lot lately. Five being waiting, nine being restrained. They're very similar. So we have 26, which is potential energy. Okay, moving to waiting. And if we're looking at the component trigrams, we have the mountain on top of heaven, okay? Stability, stillness on top of this creative uh, heavenly energy, this spark of life, you could say. And it is moving to water on top of heaven. So like a cloud that is ready to, to give rain, but maybe, isn't, it, maybe it's not raining yet. We have to wait, we have to dance for the rain. Uh, heaven inside of the mountain is this like spirit that we have inside of us that, you know, has all this potential for manifestation. It's like going into the cave of a mountain and like working on your craft or trying to find some kind of um, truth with deep within yourself. So Hillary Barrett, who is, I love her translation. She asked this question, how can you make the most of this potential? How would it be to master this? She talks about steady persistence over time, letting the crops grow to their full potential before harvest. Heaven in the center of the mountain, a mountain cave, gaining strength, the woodshed. I think about it like a musician 
that goes off into his, you know, I don't know, into his the woodshed that like they call it, I guess, to practice his instrument before he goes and records the album or something like that. He needs to really work on his craft and, and cultivate all the latent potential so that it can be manifested in this great artistic work. And that's the phase that we're at, I think, with Venus. We're cultivating all this wonderful potential. We're seeing all of the gifts that we may have with this internal spark, this internal flame, this internal eros. And we do have one changing line, though. And there's some good advice in, in the changing lines. We have changing line five and six. Line five says, the tusks of a gelded boar, good fortune. So what is a gelded boar? Well, it is a castrated boar. So a boar was thought of as a wild, uncontrollable force uh, in a lot of mythological treatments. So if we are castrating this wild, uncontrollable force, that we're pacifying it on some level. We're making it more domesticated, easier to deal with. They have some translations that talk about castrating an uncontrolled force in your life, avoiding direct confrontation, okay, removing your emotional charge or your impulse to fight. I think that, that this is one of the keys to Venus in this decade. You can disarm your competition or whoever you are fighting with, with charm, with grace, with like sex appeal. You know, and this is like, like Marilyn Monroe, like all she had to do was just wink and, you know, like, the, you know, it would melt people. Remember in, in, in Hesiod, we talked about Eros as the limb melter. I thought that was perfect. I was like, that's, yes, the limb melter. Okay. So use a little bit of grace, use a little bit of charm to win over. Humor is a great way to, to uh, disarm a wild force, a lightening up, having a little bit of levity. Um, that can really work a lot of wonders in these, this circumstance. Line number six says, hence one attains the highway of heaven, success. So this talks about putting yourself in an excellent position by accumulating resources. It's, it's about preparing for the action that is going to take place in the future. Sticking to your principles, sticking to your integrity. And if you do both of those things, the obstacles are going to give, give way and be cleared from your path. And, and the, the pathway to heaven will be clear. So make sure that you, if you're in a battle for trying to win over someone's affection, that you fight fair, that you're not manipulating people. It is, it is you know, contrary to some of the behavior of the Greek gods, um, forcing people to be, to fall in love with you has consequences, you know, and, and it, it, it doesn't always work out so well. Um, we're not lords of the underworld. We're not Hades, okay? We're human beings, we're mortals. So we should play, I think, more by mortal rules on some level. It's, we can be inspired by the gods, inspired by these stories, but I think that the key here is stick to your principles, stick to your integrity. If you're getting into power struggles within your relationships, you know, try to just be... I don't know. Take the high ground. I think that's the thing. Take the high ground, disarm them with charm, kill them with kindness. That's another way you can think about this. Um, so those are the changing lines. And then we move to number five, which is called waiting, calculated waiting, waiting for rain, nourishment, replenishment. So Hillary Barrett, in our wonderful questions, she asks, how can you wait patiently and with commitment? While you wait, how can you make yourself ready? So to me, this, I think this speaks to 
the waiting that is necessary while we wait for Venus to emerge from under the beams. Okay, and this will happen, like I said, again, we're going to see Venus emerging from the beams on May the 22nd. So how can you prepare for that, that awakening? How can you prepare for this um, coming into the light, this fossus moment where everything is going to start clicking into place and there's going to be visibility to the things that you're working on? Okay. All right, my friends, I think that's what I have for you today. Thank you so much for hanging out with me today and going on a mythological and astrological journey. I so very much love sharing these stories with you. If you are enjoying this channel, make sure that you hit that like button. That's the first thing that you can do to help me out. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to the channel with the notification bell on if you want to hear uh, these videos in real time. You can subscribe to my newsletter if you want to hear about uh, kind of uh, other appearances I may be doing or uh, things about my readings or discounts or all of those things in nature classes, all that stuff. There's links for that in, in the description of these videos as well. If you want to make a material contribution to what I'm doing here, you can buy me a coffee or a tea or a smoothie or a cupcake or, or whatever at buymeacoffee.com. There is a link in the description of this video. Thank you so much for helping me to keep this accessible to the most amount of people. I very much appreciate you and you are helping me to keep the lights on. Thank you very much. And of course, if you're having some challenges, some relationship challenges, and you want to see how all of these aspects and stories are affecting your life, if you want to find out kind of what type of mythological themes you may be playing out on this divine stage, this divine comedy, this divine tragedy, reach out for a reading. I, my books are open right now. And uh, I usually do readings on Mondays and Tuesdays, but if you need a separate time, if you need a weekend time, just reach out and we'll figure it out. Um, I always love hearing from you and working with you in that capacity as well. All right, everyone, that's what I've got for you today. Be kind to one another, kill them with kindness, use your charm and charisma, just be yourself, it'll be okay. And uh, most of all, be kind to yourself and everything will work out fine. So I'll see you the next time. Take it easy.